Well, I'd like to turn you to uh, that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, that little section, those first few verses, and particularly verse 3. So 1 Corinthians 4 and from verse 3. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human courts. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Now, we talked this morning about the longing that every human being has to be accepted. And we talked about uh, how that is the very thing that God offers to do. Uh, he is the God who justifies, uh, which means to accept, to vindicate, to embrace. And uh, that is the ultimate answer to our deep longing uh, to be accepted and to belong. Um, the great doctrine of justification by faith in Christ. Well, that was this morning. Now, tonight I want to pick up that same idea, but to talk now about the impact that believing that, that experiencing that has on a person's life. You know, the gospel is not just an idea. It's not just a true idea. You know, it is a life. And to believe in the Lord Jesus, to believe that he's the Son of God, to believe that he came into the world for us, to believe that he is our righteousness, to believe that he died on the cross and has paid for all our sins, to believe that for his sake the Father accepts us once and forever, you don't believe that and stay the same. Uh, inevitably, there's a, a huge change. Now, for some people, that change is very, very sudden and instant. For others, it's much more gentle. But whether it's sudden, whether it's gentle, it's just as real and it's lifelong. So, uh, that's, that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. Assume justification by faith. Assume tonight that I'm talking to believers who know what it is to repent of their sins, who knows what it is to put their trust in Christ. Uh, and what I want to focus on is, is to think about the, the very practical freedom that that brings into a person's life. And so using this passage, uh, there are three things, three freedoms that are ours as believers. And these are freedoms, strangely enough, you've got to fight for. You've got to exercise faith. You've got to know what's happened to you. And you've got to be applying this freedom. And, uh, and when we do that, well, it's a very, very powerful and liberating thing in some very practical ways. So, what are the three freedoms uh, that become ours when we believe uh, in Jesus, when we are justified, accepted by God? First, really practical freedom is that it empowers us to handle our critics. That's the first thing. If you believe that you've been justified by God himself, uh, that gives you the power to cope much better with the people that are out to get you, the people that are out to tear you apart, the people that are out to put you down. 
So it, it enables us, in other words, to handle other people in the rough and tumble of everyday life. Now, that is what we're seeing portrayed in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, those first few verses. Uh, the person writing is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to people that he knew, and he'd met these people because they'd become Christians through him. So if you know about Paul, you know that as an apostle, he was a traveling preacher, a traveling church planter, and he had come to Corinth. Corinth is a massive cosmopolitan city, a very important place, very intimidating place, and he'd gone there feeling pretty intimidated, but he'd had the courage to, to preach the gospel and to share the gospel, and God had honored that, and God had used the apostle to bring into being a, a new church, and not just any church. It was a strong, vibrant church, a big church, it seems, and um, that's the story uh, behind this letter. Paul knows these Corinthians, and he's, he's the reason they're Christians. He's brought this church into being. But what's happening is that Paul now has moved on, some time has passed, and Paul is now taking criticism from the church in Corinth. The other people have come in, and they've seen the power there is in this church and they've they've sought to exploit that power other leaders other preachers have come in and they've uh, they've sought to split the church off from the apostle paul so there's been flack flying around and paul is getting personally criticized now that's the the backstory uh, to this bit of 1 corinthians now uh, let's step away from 1 corinthians to our own lives Paul's being criticized. Well, uh, we all know a little bit about being criticized, and some of us know more than others about being criticized. And it's never easy, is it? And in fact, it's possible, uh, depending on who's criticizing you and what they're criticizing you about, it's, it's possible to really be quite affected by it. Uh, emotionally, psychologically, uh, it's possible even to become controlled by the criticisms of others. And uh, it can be devastating. Uh, and it sort of depends, doesn't it, how close you are to the person being, crit being critical. And it sort of depends on what it is they are criticizing. Uh, and, and if it's somebody really close to you, then the criticism's much harder to bear. Or if they're criticizing something that's really important to you, then the criticism is hard to bear. Now, in Paul's situation, they were criticizing something that was at the very core of his identity. Uh, Paul, he tells us in the very first verse of the letter, Paul was called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he'd been called by Christ. He'd been sent out as a, an apostle, a preacher of the gospel. Uh, and this was just at the very heart of his identity. And he had obeyed the call. And so he was giving his life to traveling and to preaching and to planting churches. And he'd given up an awful lot in pursuit of that. He tells us later on in the letter, you know, he had a right to an income. 
He had a right to a family. But he'd given all of that up for the sake of the gospel, so he could travel, so he could plant these churches. In fact, he says in chapter 9 that he was ready to be all things to all people for the sake of this gospel and for the spreading of uh, churches. Now, you see the situation here then. Paul is being criticised about that very thing. His ministry, his calling, his work as an apostle, his gospel work, that's the very thing that these people are criticizing. Uh, And they're saying he's not up to much, and they're saying he's no kind of leader. So the criticism that Paul's got here is the sort of criticism that most of us would find unbearable and life-defining and devastating. You know, they're criticizing that which is closest to his very identity. It's that which he is totally committed to. It's that which has cost so much that is his very life. And of course, let's not forget that it's intensely personal. That the people turning against him here are people who actually owed him their very lives. They're the people that he had loved, that he had shared the gospel with, that he had discipled, that he had forged into this local church. Uh, He had suffered for them. And now, uh, in a few brief, whatever it is, months, uh, these people are turning against him. There's, there's There's an act of betrayal here. So, so that's the, the scenario, that's the story. Um, now, uh, my point is this. What you've got in Corinth then with the Apostle Paul is, is a recipe for a devastating, life-destroying meltdown for Paul. You know, that which is closest to him, that which is most personal to him is being... Uh, attacked by the very people that have benefited from his labors. You know, if that happens to a person, then boy, you can expect that person to be in big emotional trouble, big psychological trouble, big spiritual trouble. But what's so amazing about this little section we've read is the simple fact that that is not what's happening. Paul is being attacked And yet, he's not just shutting these people down and telling everybody to listen how terrible these people have been to him. He's not uh, pushing them away. He's writing them a letter. And he's not just writing them a letter. He's he's trying to be open towards them. And he's making it clear. Uh, So verse 3, for example, he says, "Uh, it's not a great concern for me that I'm judged by you. They were judging him. He said, this is not devastating me. I care very little, he says, if I'm judged by you. In fact, he says, I'm not worried about what any human court will say about me. It's amazing. Uh, and yet, he's not just shutting them down. He's still writing to them. And um, you know, later on, say verse 14, as he writes, he, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Yeah, the relationship is still there. And it's still strong. And it's still healthy. He still loves these people. He still cares for these people. Now the great question then that raises is, how does he do that? I would love to know how he does that. How do you walk 
through the fires of criticism with the intensity that he is experiencing and not be in crisis. Don't you think that would be a useful thing to know? Well, well, well how does he do that? Well, he, he tells us here the answer. And it's the simple fact that he knows. He really, really knows that whatever the Corinthians think about him, however much the Corinthians may be rejecting him, that he knows in the very depths of his being with a great certainty that whoever else may reject him, God accepts him. In other words, he knows what we talked about this morning. He knows that he's been justified. Uh, not because he's a great person, but he's been justified because Jesus is a great person. And he's been justified because he's connected to Christ. And he's got his faith in Christ. He's married to Christ. And he's sharing in Christ's perfect status and relationship with the Father. And he's been washed clean by the atoning blood of Christ. So Paul's identity is not tied to his ministry success. Paul's sense of well-being is not tied to whether people like him or not. No, Paul has rooted his identity, his sense of well-being, his peace, his hope, his faith, his future, his life in the deep, deep love of Jesus. That's his secret. He says it in verse 4. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. End of verse 4. It is the Lord. So we, if we add him up here tonight, and if we, we said, oh, Paul, now we'll interview Paul. I'd like to do that. Uh, interview Paul. Now tell us about these terrible Corinthians. Look what they did to you. He'd say, hang on a minute now. Let's not go to town on the Corinthians. Yes, that's what happened. Yes, that was the situation. But look, I wasn't basing my life on whether they liked me or not. Uh, my life is based on, on whether God likes me or not. Not whether they accept me, but whether he accepts me. And I know that God accepts me. It's God who is my judge. That's what I'm interested in. And because he knows that God accepts him, and he knows that God accepts him by sheer grace, he's able to experience great freedom. He's getting this deep, cutting, personal criticism yet he's not lashing out and he's not shutting them down he's still secure he's still open he's still loving he is still free now there's the first thing that i wanted to bring to you this evening if you know you've been justified by grace through faith and there's nothing that can ever change that, if you have an assurance of that, you have a tremendous resource to cope when people turn against you. You have a great freedom. You've got somewhere to go when there's nowhere else to go. And whatever you're losing in terms of esteem and reputation and friendship, you know that your life itself and your sense of self is utterly safe. Because your life, to use another of Paul's phrases, your life is hid with Christ in God. 
It's not hid with whether people like you or not. It's not hid with whether you're a success or not. Uh, It's hid with Christ in God, and there's nothing on earth that can touch it. It's a great freedom. Wonderful place to be. Then there's a second freedom that knowing you're justified by faith brings. The second thing is this. Knowing that enables us not just to handle the critics out there, but it enables us to handle our most ferocious critic. I mentioned this this morning, and I want to come back to it because I only mentioned it this morning. Uh, Who is our most ferocious critic? Well, it's not your boss. It's not your spouse. It's not your teenage kids. Uh, Your most difficult relationship is with yourself. It's with your own heart. You know, people can be critical, uh, but they're not the worst. (laughs) The most ferocious is always the critic inside. Or is it just me? I doubt it. At least I know that Arianna Huffington agrees with me. Um, She's the co-founder of the Huffington Post, big website. And uh, she wrote this. Even our worst enemies don't talk about us the way we talk to ourselves. It feeds the inner critic she talks about. It feeds on putting us down and strengthening our insecurities and doubts. Now, it's quite an important thing to recognize. If you've never thought about this, if you've never thought about the inner critic, I think it's time to start. Um, Because if you don't recognize it, you're going to just be captive to it. And you're going to constantly be feeling uh, down, constantly feeling uh, insecure, constantly feeling got at. Now, if you Google inner critic, again, um, your computer might collapse uh, because there's loads of stuff about it. Um, And I found a book. Now, I don't know how mainstream this is. It's claimed to be mainstream, but it suits my purposes for now, just to illustrate uh, just how big a deal this inner critic is. So this is from somebody called Jay Early and Bonnie Weiss. And they've written a book, I think they've run a course, that talks about seven different types of inner critic. I hope I'm not about to give you problems you didn't know you had, but uh, let's just mention the seven types. They talk about the perfectionist, when your heart is constantly telling you you're not good enough. Or there's the taskmaster, where your heart is constantly telling you you're not working hard enough. Or there's the inner controller, who's constantly telling you you can't do that. Or there's the guilt tripper, who's constantly saying to you, how could you do that? And then there's the destroyer who's constantly saying to us, you are useless. And then there's the underminer who's constantly saying to you, those people, they don't really like you. And what do you think you're doing well? You're not really doing it well. And then there's the conformist, number seven, the conformist who's constantly telling you, you need to be like that person, or you need to be like that person, or you need to be like that person. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I started reading that list, I started saying, yeah, I got them all, I think, yeah. Full set. It's like top trumps, you know, trade them with your friends. 
uh, all the different ways that we feel insecure and and what we're being told is what even our secular culture recognizes is that lurks in every one of us sort of a, a the the conscience gone gone rabbit you know totally dysfunctional and uh, constantly eating away at us and uh, being destructive about our lives now if you say well okay but Ariana Huffington and uh, whoever wrote those seven types that's not our authority just because our culture says it that doesn't mean I believe it well it's in the Bible too uh, so we could talk about conscience here and the way that dysfunctions. But there is a, a very clear verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. 1 John 3, verse 20, uh, where uh, John is speaking and he, he has a little throwaway phrase. And the phrase reveals the inner critic. He says, whenever our hearts condemn us. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, when our hearts are constantly condemning us. Now, if all that's true, if that's what we've got in our own hearts, uh, then, well, there's an issue there, isn't there? Especially in our culture, which is telling us to, to listen to our feelings. Have you picked that up? It's absolutely everywhere. You know, a rising generation, young people, they're constantly being taught by every pop song they listen to. And every music video they watch, and even the little ones, every Disney film uh, they see, every uh, Disney princess, uh, they, they're all telling us to look to our feelings, to listen to our feelings. It's the big idea of our culture. We've even given it a name, expressive individualism. And uh, it's a huge issue for people. And uh, it's there, we're breathing this sort of thing in all the time. How can you see how, how dangerous that is? If we've got this inner critic, and if we've got in our own hearts this, this condemnation, um, and if we're going to say, let's empower our feelings, let's empower our hearts. Well, can you see how dangerous that is? We are going to be empowering our inner critic. We're going to be empowering our anxieties and our fears. And we're going to be empowering that little list Where's it gone? You're going to be empowering the perfectionist and the taskmaster and the inner controller and the guilt tripper and the destroyer and the underminer and the conformist. You know, no wonder we're in so much trouble. No wonder a, a younger generation ex especially is, is growing up so insecure, so anxious. But what's so wonderful here, and what I want to highlight, is that Paul says he can even cope with this. You know, the gospel doesn't just enable him to cope with the critics that are out there. It enables him to cope with the great critic that is in here. So listen to what he says. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3, he starts talking about other people. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. That was my first point. But then he comes to this second point. And this is where he, he starts to talk about the inner critic. He says, indeed, I do not even judge myself. Now, wouldn't that be a wonderful place to be? 
he says, I have silenced that inner critic. Doesn't mean I'm right all the time. That's not what he's saying. Doesn't mean I never sin. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm no longer controlled by that inner critic. I'm no longer being dominated by that inner critic. Uh, he says, I do not even judge myself. End of verse 3. Let me say it again. I do not even judge myself. And in fact, he goes on further, um, and he, he, he actually says, I've, I've completely disempowered that inner critic. So verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. So he's, he's just not letting his self, uh, his, his inner critic, uh, control him at all. He says, yes, sometimes I get a guilty conscience, sometimes I get a good conscience. None of that's relevant. I just don't listen to any of that at all. I don't let that control me. I don't let that destroy me. I don't let any of that inner angst dominate my life. I am free of it. Now, wouldn't that be a great place to be? Uh, where uh, we haven't got our anxieties shaping our agenda and our fears driving us. Where we're just free of that. The great question then becomes, how has he managed that? And the answer is the same thing. It's because he has a higher court. So he's able to relativize what other people say about him because it's the Lord who judges him. And then he goes on to say, uh, I'm able to relativize what my own heart says about me. For the same reason, it is the Lord who judges me. So my conscience is clear. This is verse uh, into verse 5 now my conscience is clear but that does not make me innocent it is the Lord who judges me then he goes on verse 5 therefore he says to all the Corinthians judge nothing before the appointed time wait till the Lord comes he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts at that time each will receive his praise from God and what he's saying is this, I have come to Christ, I've been justified by sheer grace through faith. I know God accepts me and because I know God accepts me, I'm able to, uh, to not be controlled by the people who criticize me and I'm able to not be controlled by my own heart when it criticizes me. That leads me to the third, the final type of freedom that justification gives us. So it enables us to handle our critics, other people. It enables us to handle our most ferocious critic, our own hearts. And then the third thing, it enables us to stand before the ultimate critic, by which I mean God himself. And to put it in more biblical language, it enables us to stand on the day of judgment. Now, uh, for the rest of the time we've got, I want to talk to you about the day of judgment. Uh, two things I want to say. Number one, that day is real. It's real. You know, our culture, we wonder about death and what comes after but there's really no mystery 
The Bible is very clear about what happens. Let me just give you a few passages. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It is appointed for man to die once. What comes next? And after that comes judgment. A nice, clear, straightforward statement. It is appointed to human beings to die once. And after that comes judgment. Couldn't be clearer, could it? So you're not reborn into another body, uh, depending on how good your life has been. You're not snuffed out into non-existence. You're not absorbed into the force uh, or some other deity. And so you lose your individuality and your personhood no, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. You've got to stand before God. Uh, in, in fact, he talks about it in verse 4 and 5. Um, he says, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. There's the Bible's teaching. Now, tons of other passages. Uh, what about uh, the words of Jesus himself? Your gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the friend of sinners. Uh, listen to him in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... So that's a future day when Jesus returns, uh, but he comes in his glory with a revelation of the fullness, of the depth, of the immensity of who he is as the Son of God. So he comes in his glory, and then we're told, and all the angels with him. So heaven's going to empty. Uh, the Lord Jesus is going to come, and all the angels with him. And we're told that when he comes on that day, he will sit on his glorious throne. So he's coming now and revealing his sovereignty. This is what the Bible teaches. Uh, and then what's he going to do? Well, verse 32, Matthew 25. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then to jump on a few verses. Uh, so he separated the nations, people on his right, people on his left. Then it says, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So he divides the human race. It's the day of judgment. He divides the human race. All our secrets have been revealed. Uh, everything, even the motives of our hearts. And on the basis of what we've done, uh, we are divided. And then those on his rights, we are welcomed, they are welcomed into glory, into rest. But, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Yeah, what a devastating passage. Is that true, do you think? 
Do you believe that? Is it true then the world doesn't end when the sun expands and swallows up the earth and we, we all catch fire uh, in a billion or so years? It doesn't end through some climate catastrophe. It doesn't end through a meteor strike. No, it ends when the Lord Jesus Christ intervenes in his glory and majesty and he calls the human race to account and he separates sheep from goats, believers from unbelievers, and he, he makes all things new. So, so another passage, this time from the book of Revelation. Uh, it's chapter 20 from verse 11. John's, uh, the apostle John is having a great vision. He's seeing that last day and he says this, Revelation 20, verse 11. He says, Then, then I saw a great white throne. There we are, we've read about it in Matthew 25. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, listen to this, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. Even creation itself, recognizing the glory and holiness of the Creator, when he comes from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Where are you going to flee from the presence of the returning Lord of glory? Then he says, verse 12, Revelation 20, And I saw the dead, and I saw the dead, it's a day of resurrection, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, See, there's the gathering of the nations from Matthew 25. And then we're told that books were opened. There's some kind of judgment. There's some kind of assessment coming. And then we're told another book was opened. And he tells us what this book is. It's the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book. So, so these first books, these are books that have recorded our lives, that have recorded what we've done, how we've lived, where our faith has been, um, why we've done what we've done. Was it for the glory of God? Was it done in Jesus' name? Was it out of faith that we've lived? The books are opened. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And in case we haven't got it, he underlines it. Verse 13, he says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, the grave, gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. See, it's a, it's a great climax. Now, we live in a culture that doesn't believe any of that. We can't do anything about that, can we? The big question, though, is are we part of a church that does believe in that? And not just believe it as a, a doctrine that's on a doctrinal basis on a website somewhere, but believes it as a day which is surely coming, which is unstoppably and irreversibly coming, uh, the time of which we do not know. Because that's how it's presented in the Bible. It's presented as the great momentous event that overshadows our entire existence for these brief years on planet Earth. That day is real. That's the first thing I wanted to say. Second thing, and this is the wonderful thing. That day holds 
no terror for the believer. That day holds no terror for the Christian. Now, I don't know about you, but I read those words and I start to worry. Really? Books where everything I've done, everything I've thought, everything I've said are recorded? My motives recorded? Or that verse in in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, uh, the second half of verse 5, where Christ will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. I don't know about you, but I've hidden quite a bit in darkness. And I'm really quite anxious that it should stay there. But we've been told here that Jesus will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and he will expose the motives of the heart. I mean, what, what kind of standard is that? I can't stand if you're going to expose the motives of my heart. And, and, and that means I I've, have to have done everything I've done out of love for Jesus. Not just righteous, but righteous even in its motivation. I mean, what a standard. It's, it's enormous. You know, I hear this stuff and I start to tremble. And so we've got to come to this second point, which is that for the Christian, that day holds no terror, not because we'll be able to hide everything, not because it won't come to light as far as we're concerned, but because for the believer, those sins, those things we've buried in the dark, those motives that we can't even face, those sins have been forgiven. That's what it means to be a Christian. Uh, To be a Christian is to have had your sins paid for by the Son of God. Uh, So you don't have any righteousness of your own, but Jesus has become your righteousness. So all of the perfection of his life in word, in thought, and in motive, that perfect righteousness that he wrought, that has been credited to you. So you're a grubby little sinner with uh, secrets and motives that you hope nobody exposes. But now you are clothed in the righteous life of Christ and you've been credited with his pure motives. You know, Jesus had nothing hidden in the dark. Jesus had no motive buried deep down that he hopes nobody will see. And that righteousness, that quality of righteousness is credited to the grubby little Christian who has this grain of faith in Jesus. And not only that, but the blood of Jesus, uh, his death on the cross, uh, his death now, the death of an infinite person, a person of infinite value and infinite worth, his blood, his sacrifice is washing away all our guilt so that the hell that we deserve, the lake of fire that we deserve, uh, that has been quenched for us in the blood of Jesus. He's taken it all. And so we see him on the cross and we we see the way his life unraveled. And we can't really understand why his, his life unraveling like that. I can see why my life might unravel like that. I can see why your life might unravel like that. But not his. He's the one holy, righteous person who's ever lived. He's not supposed to die on any cross. He's not supposed to be condemned. He's not supposed to be shamed. He's not supposed to be stripped. He's not supposed to be hanging there alone in the dark. With heaven silent 
as he cries for help? You know, that's the stuff that happens to people like me and people like you. That's, that's the sort of thing that should happen to sinners. So, so why is Jesus experiencing that? Well, the inescapable, inevitable, ongoing, permanent conclusion of the New Testament is that he's experiencing that so that I will never have to that he's experiencing it in my place, that he has very deliberately put himself in the firing line. He's put himself in the crosshairs and he's taking the hit that the wrath of God, that I will suffer forever in hell, he is experiencing and he is absorbing and he is discharging. He's offering himself as a propitiation, satisfying the wrath of the Father. So the Christian thinks about that judgment day, starts to tremble, and then says, well, no, hang on a minute. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, and God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And then as we think about that day of judgment and we begin to comfort ourselves with the thought of what Christ has done, there's another step we've got to take. Not only have your sins been paid for by Jesus, there's another piece of thinking, another piece of faith you've got to exercise. Uh, and you've got to realize this, that actually there's a very real sense in which you as a Christian have already had your judgment day. It happened the day you were converted. It happened the day you believed. You know, that may have been a long journey for you. You, you became aware of God and uh, maybe that took 20 years. And uh, then you spent 20 years trying to be religious and sorting it all out. And eventually you, you realized you couldn't do that. Or maybe you didn't try to be religious. Maybe you just ran as hard and fast as you could and became one of those people that just won't put up with anybody talking about God. Or maybe you just numbed yourself with this world and, and the entertainment and the pleasures that it so readily and powerfully supplies. But whatever you did, you, 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 you ran, you hid, you anesthetized. But there came to a point when you stopped running and you started feeling and you became convicted of your sin. And what did you do? Well, as you learned about Jesus and you began to understand what he'd done for you, you, you turned, and instead of running, you actually came to the Father. You actually came to Jesus, and instead of hiding your sin and burying it deep down as possible and pretending it wasn't there, you started to open the doors. You started to tell him about it. You started to confess it. You started to ask him to, to, to see it and to show you more of it, and you, you started to confess and you started to say, have mercy on me, like the guy this morning. And you started to say, I have a saviour. I put my faith in Christ. For Jesus' sake, accept me. For Jesus' sake, forgive me. You start to plead the blood of Christ. You start to put your faith in Christ. And God did something in response to that. He gave his verdict. And the verdict was not guilty, justified by faith. 
So when we think about the day of judgment and we tremble, and I hope we do tremble, and I hope I never stop trembling, uh, we must go on. And in our trembling, we must reach for the atonement of Christ and the righteousness of Christ and remember that our sins are paid for with an infinite price. And we must then go on and we must reach for the fact that we've already come before God and confessed freely our sins. And he has responded with a justifying verdict. He is, to change the picture slightly, he's run to meet us. He's thrown his arms around us. Uh, and he's owned us as his son. He's put shoes on our feet and a ring on our finger, and he's clothed us in, uh, in the best robe, and he's given us a seat at the table, back in the family. So what will that last day bring? Well, you will rise, and you will be gathered among the nations, and you will stand before him, and you will be put on his right. And you will hear the words from the king himself, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Not because you're better than anybody on the left, but because you have faith in Jesus. Bang, that's it. And all I'm trying to say is, that's massive. What is the root of all our fears? It is our mortality. It is the judgment of God. Even if we can't articulate it, the Bible says we know. There's a day of judgment. We know we cannot stand that's the source of all our fears. But, but you see what the gospel brings. Not just the ability to cope with people who criticize us. Not just the ability to cope with our fallen little hearts that won't give us any rest. But something vast and eternal and irreversible. It gives us peace with God. And that means you can live loved. And it means you can live accepted. And it means you can live secure. And it means you can live with no fear in life or in death. You're indestructible. It doesn't matter what happens in this life. You're indestructible. And you know, I can still remember the experience as a young Christian when that started to dawn on me. I can still remember the hairs going up on the back of my neck can still remember the release as I realized I'm safe. Doesn't matter what comes, doesn't matter what anybody says, doesn't matter if I die tonight, I'm safe, untouchable.